Welcome everyone to the Airways Podcast, Season 4, Episode 11. Uh, I'm Helmi Villamizar, your host, joined by Rohan Anan and Bene Baskara. How are you guys doing? I'm doing pretty well. I flew to New York this past weekend on Delta. I had an Airbus A220-300 on the way there and an Airbus A220-100 on the way back. And... The Sky Lounge is the Sky Club Lounge in Chicago is pretty great in Terminal Five, but the real star of the show is the new LaGuardia terminals in C and D. It was my first time to fly into them, and the Sky Club there is also pretty fantastic. So, can't believe it's LaGuardia Airport anymore. Yeah, it looks totally different. Yeah, I, I'm doing better than American Airlines share price, uh, which is a little teaser for the rest of today's episodes, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, no, the new LaGuardia, I flew through there maybe a couple months ago. It's, uh, yeah, you, you can't believe it's not butter. I can't believe it's LaGuardia Airport. Like, that is night and day from the first time I flew through um, LaGuardia. So, let's see, it hasn't fixed the airspace or anything, but um, the terminal is nice at least. Yeah, it's yeah. nice. I saw photos. Um, I'm flying Copa on Friday, so I might check out their lounge there. Because I have to be there for six hours. And then American to Miami. Also, 737s, 800s, nothing special. Today, I think we're going to talk about all the earnings that came out the last week or so. Um, or lack yeah. thereof. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, at least the, the, you know, Delta, American Delta and United. And then we might just go into a little bit of like the big news of the week. Al Baker stepping down as CEO of Qatar Airways. So let's begin with the earnings. Um, who do we get? We who should we begin with? American. I, I think we go worst to first, um, keeping that uh, Gordon Bethune book title. And why don't we start with American? Yep, to your point. Um, and then we can we can get into the happier uh, quarters from United and Delta. We should talk a little bit about Alaska as well, since they reported last week. Yes, for sure. Um, yeah, well, American Airlines reported its third quarter 2023 financial results on the 18th with, uh, was it approximately $13.5 billion in revenue. However, the company also reported a gap third quarter, a net loss of $545 million. So operating margin for them was in the negative 1.7% uh, figure. When he compares to the other two, which were in the double digits, I believe. Um, one of the highlights of the announcement was that they reduced total debt by $1.4 billion during the quarter. Uh, as we know, that Americans' total debt um, has gone down by about $10.9 billion from mid-2021. Uh, and so naturally, that's going to be something that uh, people will continue to look forward to. Um, it is expect it is expecting that the fourth quarter 2023 adjusted operating margin would be between two to four percent, um, and the full year would be fifteen percent. So bear in mind, we saw that they had uh, double digit margins in the second quarter of this year, and then they revised the forecast down to be lower for the third quarter. Um, I was surprised that they managed to you know get into the negative numbers, but I think that there are some important nuances to the actual earnings results from this year or from this quarter rather so 
Um, Vinay, why don't we kind of dive into why Americans' results were, were less than what they had expected um, and what can be the explanation behind their optimism for Q4 as well as for the full year? So, I mean, I, I think, yeah, like the thing about Americans' quarter is that it was bad by comparison to United and Delta, but it was actually, you know, it was it was pretty decent in its own right, right, depending because of where we are in the economic cycle. I mean, I think if you look for why Americans' results were so weak, you got to start with its shift in strategy relative to United and Delta. That, that's got to be the starting point, right? I think the first piece of that is that American, in sort of the post-pandemic period, has really doubled down on domestic flying and domestic growth particularly out of its Sunbelt hubs like Charlotte and Dallas-Fort Worth, and then to a lesser extent, Phoenix and Miami. And United and Delta have been much more aggressive about going international. What we've seen over the last 12 months, particularly across the last couple of quarters, is that domestic revenue trends have been pretty rough for everyone, right? United and Delta, you know, both of them are doing a little bit better than American when it comes to domestic flying. But Compared to, you know, the 2021 or even the early parts of 2022, we've seen domestic revenues start to really level off. We've seen oil jump back up after um, some some sort of <clears throat> some headwinds from that a little bit. Sorry, some tailwinds from that a little bit earlier um, in this economic cycle. Oil prices are starting to jump back up. Domestic revenues are down or, or flat because of um, just immense amounts of capacity growth, frankly, in the sort of post-COVID surge. Um, and, mm. you know, labor costs are, are more expensive, right? So domestic flying is not as profitable as it was pre-pandemic, and it's not even as profitable as it was a year or two ago because fair growth isn't where it was and, and, and costs are higher. I think the other piece of that is that insofar as Amer United and Delta were relatively better on domestic flying, some of that, it's hard to argue that that hasn't come at least in part from Americans' um, war, I guess, that it declared on corporate managed travel, right? Um, you know, American has been making a big push to shift away from corporate managed travel, right? This is the traditional model where a travel agent or, you know, a, a big org within a company is going to manage travel for their employees. Um, and they've tried to shift more to direct buying. Right where you know the individual employee is buying travel on American through their own account through their own system, and there's a little bit of a wraparound. But um, you know, I think there's been some really coverage of this by Brett Snyder over at Cranky Flyer. But it's I'm curious as we go quarter by quarter and as business travel sort of limps along in its recovery, I'm curious how much that will continue to drag on their domestic results. Just because business travel isn't what it was in 2019, but it is sort of slowly chugging along and growing, particularly um, some of that blended leisure travel, but also just, you know, traditional corporate business travel, right? I've spent sort of, you know, a good chunk of this year at conferences. And I can tell you they're, they're back to what they were before the pandemic. So I don't think corporate travel has fallen off as much as American thought it was going to. Hmm. They wonder if they regret that move now. So I didn't listen to the earnings uh recall or call yet but was there any mentioning of the northeast alliance and the impact of the unraveling of the northeast alliance on their revenue performance or no well i don't know that you're always going to get the the straightest of answers there i think what what americans said on the call was something like we are seeing 
that our New York portfolio for us as American is actually more right flies than it was pre-pandemic. And, and the rationale they gave for that is that the short haul day trip business trips, the stuff like Boston, uh, New York to Boston or New York to Chicago or New York to Raleigh, that stuff has tended to fall off. Whereas the longer haul travel either to Europe um, or on longer transponds to the West Coast uh, appears to have more solid demand, right? So that, that was the claim that they made you know, when New York is doing fine. Um, do I believe them? Uh, I mean, New York is probably doing fine just in because it is actually probably more international as a share of total capacity than the rest of Americans network, right? It, like, you know, DFW is a domestic, a primarily domestic hub. Um, Charlotte, Phoenix, primarily domestic hubs. LA is at this point primarily a domestic hub because, you know, most of the, the trans-specific stuff hasn't come back. So in the context of Americans Network today, I think you could literally look at the numbers in New York and say, oh, wow, margins are doing okay there because it's more international than the rest of the network. But I don't know that that means that, that, that it's doing well or it's contributing as much profit as it could have with the North Alliance in place. Same. I'm curious if you have a perspective on whether American is too far in with some of these changes, right? So obviously with, with some of the international capacity decisions, right? They've you know made their bones. The planes are gone, right? There's no way to pull them out of the desert and, and, and put them back into service, uh, you know? And so w- whether it's that decision, whether it's the corporate, the, the war on corporate managed travel, that one seems like it's probably a little bit easier to pull back. But I'm curious if you have a point of view on whether you think Americans should reverse course on some of those. Well, I don't know how it will be able to. It's one of the biggest airlines of the world. So whenever it makes a strategic decision to retire aircraft, to take on debt, to partner with another airline like Alaska or JetBlue, to do what it's done to its corporate travel management, to take on the you know new contracts that it has, these are long-term decisions that materially impact the carrier's outlook for the next few years and American started to kind of establish itself as the third place airline in 2018, not in 2020. So the results that it is showing just kind of show what its management has done over the years to kind of lead it to me in this place. Um, granted, a lot of things aren't predictable for it, but if I'm going to be honest with you, where it is competing and where it is competing against ultra low cost carriers and a lot of its hubs, we're looking at, you know, DFW does have, you know, a significant amount of low cost carrier competition from Spirit, same with Chicago, same with Philadelphia, same with LAX. And without having the sort of growth um, in New York or in Boston that it was hoping to have with the Northeast Alliance, um, you know, it's going to lose out to Delta and United, which have strong hubs in those markets with, you know, their own metal flying from, you know, New York, nat- notably for both airlines, but Delta and Boston as well. So, you know, American can talk about having a, a great completion factor. It can, you know, talk about having, you know, its debt kind of whittled down, I suppose. But if we're going to really focus in on its comparison with Delta and United, I mean, there's no way that it can spool up international capacity to kind of match those airlines uh, in, in at least this time frame. I mean, the Pacific is kind of off limits to it. Um, 
in the Atlantic, they can't really seem to figure out what the strategy is between New York and Philadelphia. Um, you know, they have some Atlantic, you know, trunk routes from DFW and from Charlotte um, and occasionally from Chicago. But, you know, the reality is, is that the comparison points that you're seeing from the other two airlines are just that much greater. In Latin America, I think that they, yes, are strong there. However, Latin America is a weak market right now. And Delta is beefing up capacity with its alliance with Latam. Um, and so where else does Americans sort of have uh, other coverage, you know, besides in the domestic market that can aid it, you know, in some sort of um, revenue recovery, right? Uh, once upon a time, it was out of the big three or the, you know, the big six, whatever you want to call it. It was one of the uh, highest revenue generating uh, airlines. And really its issues were with costs. Uh, and that's what kind of, led it into becoming, you know, bankrupt in 2011. But now we're seeing that those cost pressures are back up and the revenue um, that it expects to have, you know, from even just a good operational performance, it's not there. Um, and so I can't really provide, you know, one accurate forecast one way or the other, but I don't believe that it is setting itself up to overtake those two airlines any anytime soon that's just well that's a part of this that i find troubling i guess is that you're american right you've got the same exact cost base as united and as delta now maybe you have an advantage in that by virtue of shifting your network to be more about those sunbelt hubs you you're able to run a better operation so now there's some strong some structural costs on the margin you don't but fundamentally, you're American Airlines. You're a legacy carrier with really expensive pilots and really expensive crews um, and really old aircraft. And, well, not really old aircraft, but, but, but an expensive fleet of aircraft that you have a ton of debt you know, that you're carrying. You have to generate a revenue premium. And the things that American has done, either wittingly in the case of getting rid of corporate managed travel spend or unwittingly in the case of, you know, you know, pulling back from international in 2020, I'm going to give them like half a pass on that in that, you know, you don't know what the world is going to look like in 2020. Now, I don't understand why you don't give yourself the optionality to bring some of those planes back, particularly the 330s. They were a little bit younger. Use that time to, to you know, figure out what a retrofit might look like, get them up to standard. The 767s, they're old, understood. But how much, how much money do you think American could have made flying 757s that are fully paid off out of Philadelphia to secondary European holiday destinations. Th those routes were would have been a goal, right? Like United is, is running a second daily um, 767 from Newark to Naples. And obviously Philly and Newark are different markets, but th there was just so much pent up demand. You kind of, you know, you probably would have benefited from having those 757s and they, they were perfectly good airplanes. United and Delta are still using them for the next couple of years. So, um, you know, I give American like half a pass for some of that. But the, 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 the thing for me is American doesn't run itself like an airline that needs to generate a revenue premium to um, to survive and to thrive. Right. Um, I think some of that is the U.S. Airways DNA that continues to be there in the management team to this day. Right. That's where Doug Parker came from. That's where Scott Kirby came from before he left for United. And the challenge with that is that when you're U.S. Airways, you can cut your way to profitability. U.S. Airways did exactly this in that like sort of early post-recession period. When you're American Airlines, you can't do that. When you are twice the size, when you have, you know, how many ever billions of dollars worth of debt that they're carrying on their balance sheet, you can't cut costs 
and use that, you, you can't cut your way to profitability. You've got to grow revenue. You've got to generate a revenue premium. And, and right now, their route network isn't structured to do that. Their product isn't structured to do that, right? It's, it's you know, definitely behind Delta and arguably falling behind United in terms of the in-flight product. Um, a advantage is maybe the only thing that they where they have, have a bit of advantage over either Delta or United, um, especially with the loyalty points and the fact that that's a little bit more of a flexible program that I think works well. Um, your alliances are um, interestingly, Americans' alliances are probably better for the pre-pandemic world than for the post-pandemic world. In a pre-pandemic world where you're driven by business travel, right? Having you know JD partners with hubs in Tokyo and in London. Um, in a really strong partnership with a with, with a JV with a Cathay in Hong Kong, um, that you know that's 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 a good spot to be in. Today, uh, obviously, British Airways' position in London continues to be really useful, but I feel like I would rather have Lufthansa or even even Air France KLM with all their problems as my JD partner across the Atlantic. So, I and in Tokyo again as a business travel destination isn't what it once was, and it's still a very important tourist destination, but. Um, there's a long history there that means that the United ANA partnership is far, far stronger than the American and JAL partnership across the Pacific these days. Definitely. So maybe that could take us over from the worst to the second best or the second worst. Which would we qualify it and, and which would be picked? Delta or United? <laughs> Delta, I think Delta. United and Delta were pretty close. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I was I was going to put United second worst just so that people don't <laughs> accuse me of being a United homer. But yeah, let's go stick to Delta. I mean, because yeah. I also wanted to ask you guys. You know, we we got a winner coming, right? And so there's a lot of flying happening. I'm sure Delta expects good revenue there. Uh, but Ameri- just to finish up, American, will they have a better fourth quarter? Well, just from cap seasonality, they probably should, right? Because if you believe that international is is where there's a little bit more strength, they're mm-hmm. much more Latin America weighted with their international network. They've got Miami, okay. which is obviously still the hub for Latin American travel in the United States. So one would hope so, but but here's the problem, right? In the traditional airline structure, and I think this is you know less true than it was in 2019, but still true, right? who's continuing to fly this time of year? It's it's not your, you know, families that are going on vacation or your husband-wife couple that are going to Europe for a week um, on, a, on a romantic getaway. People that are traveling, right, or, you know, or husband-husband or wife-wife, right? I've got to be inclusive here. Um, it's not just, um, it's not just, it's not really vacationers who are traveling at this time of year. It's people like me, right, who are, who are traveling for work, who are traveling on business travel. Now, right. I come from a self-booked, sort of situation, um, not that I would necessarily always choose to book American by any means, but the vast majority of business travel in this period still comes from um, business travelers and really a lot of those managed travelers. And so on the one hand, yeah, you'd think that like some of the seasonality curve of international travel is going to benefit them, at least in terms of the relative comparison. But fundamentally, if they are driving managed business travel away, I'm not sure that Q4 or Q1 of next year certainly are going to look any better. Q, Q4 at least benefits from having Thanksgiving and Christmas um, slash New Year's. But Q1 of next year could could look very bleak for American if some of the sort of slowdown of that pent up leisure travel starts to go away. And they don't have a great way to capture some of that corporate travel that really matters in that period. Not to mention that if we're talking about the international, United has got big plans 
for flying to Oceania for this year. So, you know, what advantage American may feel that it has in Latin America during, you know, seasonality periods? Well, United's going to be flying, you know, a lot of capacity into Australia and to New Zealand. And then United also has capacity into South Africa, right? Those are markets that are on a seasonality basis, you know, probably going to be able to, you know, give them some of that revenue um, tailwind that they're, they're looking for. And even Delta has been expanding, I think, into both of those regions. Whereas American, what are the route structures to Australia? It's LA to Sydney, um, and then a trans-Pacific hub at LAX that is basically down to LAX to Tokyo, both Haneda Airport on both of its flights, Auckland seasonally, and then DFW Auckland seasonally. That's not that much. Yeah, now to be fair, I think there's been so much capacity thrown at the South Pacific that uh, I don't know that that's going to be making anyone any money this this winter. But I, I, honestly, I think the bigger factor is going to be just their their stunning lack of presence to and from Asia, right? Mm-hmm. The fact that they don't have a Trans-Pacific gateway um, is going to continue to bite them because, you know, it, we've kind of seen this like very sequential recovery process, right? The first thing to come back in early 2021 was domestic U.S. travel. Right, particularly the you know, continental lower 48, along with Hawaii. And next, what what started to recover was Alaska, or sorry, sorry, was was Latin America, right? Alaska, obviously as well. Um, and so that was you know kind of the later part of 2021, sort of the Q4 21, Q1 22 kind of um, surge, right? Then across 2022, it was more domestic growth, more Latin America growth. Europe starting to recover. Asia still in the dumps. This year, what we've seen is Europe. You know, just going gangbusters. Asia starting to really pick back up. Domestic flatlining off, and Latin America flatlining off. Um, and so, if you were to just kind of play that chain out in your head, what you're left with is like this winter. I think Asia, insofar as there is a lot of really nice year-over-year comparisons, Asia is going to be where a lot of margin and revenue is recovered just from you know recovering demand. Uh, now, the challenge is that American has, I think, like three or four total Trans-Pacific flights on its own metal. So they're not really well positioned to grab that. Delta, candidly, is not super well positioned to to grab a lot of that as well, right? Um, because their, I mean, their Seattle hub is has never been as strong as it could be, just because of the nature of the domestic competition with Alaska that I think impacts our ability to feed. Detroit is a shell of what it once was in terms of connectivity, and I think that impacts the ability to to fill transit flights from Detroit. Also lack of business traffic, which historically kind of filled the front of those planes while connecting traffic filled the back of those planes in Detroit. So um, as always, all roads lead back to United. I, I think like, you know, United is probably the best position of the three Delta somewhere in between and American like, yeah, like, I don't, I don't, I don't know what they're going to do exactly. But um, United beat consensus on solid domestic, right? Uh, as you know, they had a, Good international performance in Q3, but domestic was solid. Couple IT meltdowns, couple of uh, operational meltdowns. Just got yeah. to make sure that I, I beat the allegations that I'm <laughs> a United Homer. <laughs> well, I mean, I remember like it was around this time five years ago where United unveiled its plan to really beef up its domestic hub structure at Chicago, Hare, Denver, and Houston. Um, and I think the Denver in particular is really paying dividends for them. Um, you know, they kind of took a beating on the stock price when it went down. But basically, again, you know, this is Scott Kirby saying, you know, I've been here for a year and a half now. I got 
you know, a management team I brought over from American Airlines. I see that United is profitable international. Domestic could use some work. American is profitable domestic. International needs a lot of work. And then Delta is profitable in both. Well, why can't United be profitable in both? Especially if, you know, it's harder to make it rain, so to speak. It's harder to make it rain in the international world. But United has that structure. So they said, why aren't we capitalizing on the assets that we currently have? And then, you know, you have to be uh, able to give United credit for where it's deserved, you know, with the United Next strategy, with improving the product, um, with essentially being able to segment. And also, in general, I think being able to rely a lot more on good investments in IT and IT infrastructure and digital automation um, other things that kind of help the passenger experience become a lot better. Um, American may have had the ability to reserve meals on their flights for the last 10 years for their uh, passengers seated in the premium cabins. And United definitely needs to make some improvements in the Polaris catering. But uh, when it comes down to it, I think that United has just done a really great job of setting a vision, setting a strategy, and then you know sticking to it. Um, their difference in operating margin was only about 0.8, I think, percentage points from Delta. So we're looking at 12% for United and 12.8% for Delta. Um, and we're now looking at an environment where the ULCCs, like Frontier, will be between negative 4 and negative 7%. And mm. Spirit will be between negative 14 and negative 15%. Like, that's huge. Yeah, it is. Well, I think actually United was ahead of Delta in terms of pre-tax margin, 10.3% versus 9.8%. I think they were both in that 1.5-ish billion range in terms of pre-tax net income. I, I think the thing that's been really impressive about United is, yes, the, the product is still not up to Delta's level consistently acro across the food. Um, yes, the catering certainly is not up to Delta's level uh, across the, the long-haul route network. But United has, I would say, consistently improved pretty much since that, yeah, like that 2016, 27 period, 17 period, right? From the end of the Smizek era, obviously with a blip during COVID, from the end of the Smizek era to today, United has just been on an upwards trend in terms of its financial performance, in terms of its revenue generation, um, in terms of the, the quality of its in-flight product. Um, in terms of the quality of its technology, certainly it was already pretty good. Now it's you know, hands hands away the best um, you know technology stack in the business. So that to me is the thing that's most encouraging is this sort of trend line of upper up you know continuous improvement. And I think you know you're starting to see this interesting dynamic where United and Delta are breaking away from American and Southwest. I think actually is a, is a really interesting grouping to look at, right? Because you know. United and Delta are high revenue, high cost, obviously, but high revenue, high cost, high margin, premium carriers. American and Southwest are uh, starting to fall more into this tier of largely domestic, domestic focused, um, you know, uh, like reasonable quality experience carriers, right? Maybe, maybe I'm being a little unfair and a little uncharitable to American Airlines, but like that, that, like that, you're both in terms of financial performance and in terms of the kind of airline that they are trying to run and trying to be, American feels a lot more like Southwest these days than it does like United or Delta. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I still have not flown on, is it Oasis or is it Kodiak? I've not flown on 
either one of those configured aircraft and <laughs> I'm, I'm worried about my, my, I'm not even that tall, but I'm, I'm worried about the DVT, the Van Thormbos, I might encounter if I fly on one of those. I mean, it's, it's I think it's terrible it was, to look at too. It just like the pictures like just make it look so bad. Um, I was in a Oasis seven thirty seven not that long ago in first. Um, you know, the, the the sad part of all of this is that because by virtue of living in in Dallas Fort Worth, I end up flying American out of necessity and out of schedule um, a whole heck of a lot. So, um, you know, I, I, United is definitely my primary carrier, but I end up on American planes more often than I think I would in an ideal world, but here we are. And honestly, for domestic first class, I really don't see any difference between the three, right? Like that, that's not really where you see the difference. Now, everything that happens before the flight, right? I compare any Admirals Club to the United clubs at Denver or Newark, not even, not even, certainly to a Delta Stag. Um, I compare the um, the desperate act, act of trying to change my flight through Americans app. Not, not even a place. But the actual in-flight on domestic flights is is honestly pretty similar, right? United has some better snack options and some better food options for purchase and economy on longer flights. Same with Delta. Um, but seriously, like I, I like I think the domestic product is not that differentiated. Get up to speed on the commercial aviation industry with the top stories of the week by subscribing for free to the Airways NOTAM newsletter. You won't have to worry about missing a thing. Every new edition of the Airways NOTAM goes directly to your inbox. Go to airwaysmagazine.substack.com slash subscribe. That's airwaysmagazine.substack.com slash subscribe. I think the really interesting dynamic for United has been, um, and I want to go in a slightly different direction and stop picking on for American here. So I'm going to make a really tortured analogy. See, I'm, I'm going to need you guys to bear with me, right? So I'm a fan of the University of Texas's football team, right? And there's an interesting dynamic that you see repeated in its history where um, it's obviously this very well-resourced, big brand, brand name university. But the football team consistently underperforms. And then every so often it gets punched in the mouth just enough times that it like sort of wakes up and it gets all of the different pieces, all the different pieces of the machinery going in the right direction. And then it steamrolls, right? Like this is, this is a consistent pattern that you've seen throughout UT history. Rohan as a, as a UT grad, I'm sure you know some of this, like this past weekend's game, for example, maybe mm. not this past weekend's game too. In particular, but in the, the general pattern, sort of like 2005 is, is the one I'm thinking about. 1982. Yeah, sure. And I think the, and one of the reasons I'm really happy they're going to the SEC is because in the Big 12, there was kind of this ability to sort of like half-ass it a little bit, right? Like, oh, you know, we, uh, you know, well, we should be good enough to beat these teams anyway. We don't need to be, you know, firing and focusing on all cylinders. We can kind of take this lightly. I think that, that moving to the SEC puts them in a more challenging environment that's focused. Anyway, the reason I wanted to make that that sort of comparison is I think that what you've seen happen to United in Chicago O'Hare, in Denver, um, in Newark to some extent, has been very similar. Pop, you could even throw in sort of San Francisco, right? In each of those markets, right? So Southwest in Denver. American in O'Hare, that's obviously been a battle back and forth, 
but American in, in O'Hare um, with Virgin America and then Alaska in San Francisco and with JetBlue during the pandemic in Newark. In each of those cases, United got punched in the mouth in a particular market and they punched back twice as hard. And I think the best thing that happened to United's future in Denver was Southwest came in and they built a really big presence and they woke United up because they had kind of been running Denver at stasis for years and years. Denver, United woke up. Denver is now, what, the world's third busiest airport? Um, it is, I think, United's biggest hub or second biggest hub. It sort of trades off day by day with, with Chicago O'Hare. And Chicago O'Hare, they've, kicked, they've basically kicked American out of O'Hare. You can, you can literally tell the difference in traffic volume and in energy and in people between Terminal 3, where um, American sits, and, you know, frankly, these days, all of Terminal 1 and a good chunk of Terminal 2, where United sits. Yeah. Because United is, like, close to, you know, two, twice the size when you look at capacity, right? Um, in San and Francisco, also Southwest, let's not discount Southwest, already very strong at Midway. That is a contender against American and United at Chicago, but also Southwest has come into Chicago O'Hare and they're flying a lot of routes to places like Orlando and to Las Vegas and Phoenix and Denver and Dallas from O'Hare. So you know, those are a lot of routes that are bread and butter for American out of O'Hare. Oh, for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Um, again, an- another reason to group American and Southwest together. Um, and, and, and I think the, um, you know, you look at O'Hare or sorry, at San Francisco, they more or less beat down Alaska after the Virgin America merger. Alaska has has retreated in a desperate attempt, I would some might say, to uh, defend Seattle and defend uh, Portland to its roots. And then you look at Newark, right? JetBlue built all the way up during the pandemic. I think they were up to 70 or 80 daily departures. It was their third or fourth biggest station in like 2021 and, and early 22. And now um, they've retreated basically all the way back. So interestingly for United, there's a bit of that sleeping giant element to them, right? Like, you know, you go back to the 1980s, they were the world's largest airline. I think they just put out some PR saying that they are now once again, because of ASMs in their commensurately larger international destination tree, the world's largest airline. Um, and all the way in between, they've kind of been this sleeping giant. And so, yeah, I'm not sure what woke, woke them up. Maybe it's Scott Kirby jumping in, but um, they are pretty fearsome. And I think they and Delta are in a really interesting spot as you look over the next couple of years. With that said, I mean, let's close out on Delta, right? So Delta always, you know, kind of ho-hum with their, you know, strong double-digit operating performance, operating margin performance. So for the, you know, next year or year ahead, how do we imagine Delta is going to continue to shake out? Well, they expect a full year adjusted revenue of like 20% over last year. So that that's going to keep growing. Yeah, I mean, Delta just sort of keeps chugging along, right? What what they have done, if you were to strip out the couple of pandemic quarters that, that mess with everyone's results, they've built an airline that's been consistently profitable for a decade. Right. Mm. Like it's easy to kind of it's easy to kind of skip over that just because it has been so, you know, the, the, the COVID pandemic obviously warped everyone's sense of time. But this is a legitimate, legitimate straight line continuation of everything that they've been doing since 2010. From 2010 to today, 
Delta has focused on building a really, really high quality, well-run airline, whether it's the operation, whether it's the in-flight product, whether it's um, the financial balance sheet cleanliness. You look at what Delta has done, and it is this incredible track record of profitability. And, so, and sometimes it's, it's more fun to talk about some of the other airlines, right? Whether that's American with all its challenges, whether that's United, which is on this sort of exciting upwards trend, whether it's Southwest, which is kind of going sideways for the first time in a while, whether it's, you know, the ULCCs, which for the first time in like 40 years aren't making money, right? That, that's a new one. It's often very exciting to talk about all those other carriers, but there's Delta just chugging right along. And if, interestingly, if you read a book that I think we recommended on this uh, podcast before, which is Glory, Lost, and Found by Seth Kaplan and Jay Shabbat, it speaks to the fact that Delta sort of pre-deregulation and even in the, in the first sort of period post-deregulation was a very consistently profitable airline. And then between like 1990 and 2010, it was all over the place. So some years it would make a ton of money. There were some years it would make no money. Yeah, whatever, right? It, it, it sort of vacillated. It went into Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And then since 2010, it's it's right back to that historical trend. Um, so I think I think that's just a really, really interesting dynamic to look at. Yeah, it's a good point. Rohan, one thing I wanted to run, to ask you about is, did you see that uh, Delta backed off on some of their SkyMiles changes? Yeah, definitely. I mean, in fact, they kind of <laughs> impacted me a little bit because... As someone that's got the uh, one of the credit cards, I no longer have only six passes to use. I, I can use 10, um, which is actually really good um, because whenever I go to New York to visit my siblings, my nephew, um, flying Delta is the move uh, just because, um, you know, I, I, I find that going into the, I almost called it crown room. That was still a name for them. Um, the Sky Club is great. Um, and also like, you know, the benefit of being able to fly on an A220, which isn't the most comfortable aircraft, but it's definitely more comfortable than a regional jet. Um, that feels good. I just wish LaGuardia had a better way to get into Manhattan than it currently does. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, they lowered the thresholds. They certainly still made it more difficult for people to get that status. But I mean... Hey, you know, this kind of shows that the, the consumers have the power, right? You know, they were able to rally and uh, <laughs> get get Delta to kind of, uh, you know, be a little bit more cuddly, I guess. <laughs> but yes, I think this shows that. that Amex has the power because Amex probably saw a remarkable jump in uh, folks canceling their Delta card and drop off in signups for new right. Delta cards. And I'm one, one assumes that that was whispered quietly into the ears of Tom Brady in Atlanta, who then relayed the messages over to uh, to Delta management. Um, I, I found it interesting. I think we can claim vindication that we said that this wouldn't work out well for them, at least as structured when we, we talked about this a couple episodes ago. So yes. uh, I'm going to claim victory on that one. I, I do think that part of what you're seeing is Delta saying, we went a little too far too fast. I think they still want to get to where they initially announced i think they're just going to ease people into it a little bit more and i think that's part of it right is that like if they had done what they did now before right they said okay we're going to start here and then it's going to go up over these next four years i think the level of of anger is a lot more muted right and i I think it it takes a lot of the wind out of the sails of the people who are yelling about it all at once because they can say hey we're in a high inflation period there's too many travelers people love delta's product so much 
we're building in some natural accelerators for people to extend through. Because they announced this all at once mega jump, right? Um, I think that they kind of got caught a little bit over their skis. So, um, you know, almost nothing in the airline industry is pro-consumer these days, right? Um, at least pro the average consumer. But this was a, a small win for the little guy, let's say. Any any comment on Alaska? Major thing I want to just throw out is that Alaska was kind of the whipping boy of the last earnings period, right? They were the mm -hmm. ones who sort of went through a... Um, they, they were the ones who kind of first signaled some of the domestic weakness that we're really starting to see um, hold bare. Uh, and so they, they their stock took a beating last cycle. And I think this time around, they're, um, they were just sort of solidly profitable. One thing that I did want to call out is that they announced new service from Anchorage to John F. Kennedy Airport, New York JFK, last Friday, which is going to become, I believe, their longest route. Um, yes. more yes. than 3,300 miles. So um, that's, a, that's a cool one. I don't know if, if Alaska has ever flown from, uh, you know, Anchorage to New York JFK before, but they're really starting to test the edges of the uh, 737 platform in terms of range. Um, you know, I wonder if they'll, they'll take a book out of Northern Pacific or uh, New Pacific, I think is the new name, um, and fly some 757s over to Asia. But but either way, I, I think that, I thought that was really cool to see. And I think it was interesting that they were so quiet after last time being like the whipping boy of the entire industry. Yeah. Yeah. So now not to mention, wait, not, not to mention that they're all, all Boeing, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, yes. Airbus, there's that Airbus. 10 Airbus A321neos to American Airlines. Um, yes, because American Airlines can apparently acquire domestic aircraft whenever it wants. But international aircraft, that's that's a bridge too far. Well, with that said, I think we should move over to our last segment. Um, we'll keep an eye on the earnings forecaster Q4 and for the full year. Uh, but yeah, so Akbar Al Baker has decided to leave Qatar Airways. He's going to be stepping down on November the 5th. This was something I don't think any of us predicted. Um, and it is definitely a huge shakeup for Qatar Airways. Basically, that man was the face of the airline uh, and had been for several decades. Um, definitely a polarizing person. Uh, a lot of mixed bag comments that came from him, but he had a very large, successful airline to kind of back it up. Um, how did y'all sort of find out about this and what are your thoughts? So there's something almost Elon Muskian. I know I know that that's a, a loaded comparison. Uh, about Akbar Al Baker, which is that he's clearly achieved so, so, so much, right? Um, right. When he started at Qatar Airways, they had five planes. Today, they've got mm. 248. He started at Qatar Airways. Doha was a backwater. Um, and now it's one of the world's crown rule airports. And sort of like Elon Musk, right? He continuously, uh, you know, courted controversy, but I think that was to the airline's favor, right? Um, right. You know, because whatever you could write about Qatar Airways, you could never write a story that said that the product wasn't excellent. And so every time someone wrote up where Al Baker, you know, trolls U.S. airlines for saying their crap. Oh, by the way, they're a five tracks, five star airline that has the world's best economy class product and the world's best business best product. You know, you do that enough times that the brand recognition payoff was probably in your favor. And I think something is something similar is actually quite true for, for Tesla, which is 
Um, every time Elon Musk courts controversy, that article or that commentary is written up with the CEO and founder or whatever, blah, 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 of Tesla, who, you know, X, Y, and Z. So I think, I think there's something very Elon Muskian about him. I think he doesn't, the, he doesn't apologize though. No, no. And I think, um, you know, from a, on a personal level, right, he is absolutely my favorite airline executive I've ever interacted with just because, you know, you, I have this vivid memory of being at Farnborough. This is like a decade ago at this point. And, you know, you're in the room for these press conferences, A, B, C, D, back to back to back to back, right? And and they all kind of have a sameness to them, sort of like quarterly earnings calls, right? But then mm. when Akbar Al-Baker steps onto the podium, it is a complete breath of fresh air. And he's willing to answer questions in a way that no other executive um, is. So I, you know, I know he's a controversial guy. I know he said a lot of things that have offended a lot of people. But I also think you can't argue with the accomplishment. And I think it, it's, it, at least in my eyes, it was more crazy like a fox than, than, than just crazy. But Rohan, I'm curious what, you, what your first, you know, impressions were of, of Al Baker in, in, in your career covering aviation. Yeah, I mean, look, he agree with you. He said a lot of outlandish things and very similar to Michael O'Leary at Ryanair or even Ben Baldanza at Spirit. Just kind of like these very quirky comments make people want to research the airline even more. There was definitely a lot of drama with the U.S. airlines over the years, especially with the uh, blockade with Qatar in 2017, the electronics ban, the Muslim ban, then the allegations that the Middle East airlines were being subsidized, uh, and then the white paper study till American and Qatar decided to get back into bed. So <laughs> a lot of things have happened over the years um also for failing to mention the airbus drama and essentially what akbar Al baker wasn't afraid to say that you know if somebody or something disappointed to him even if it was as big as airbus he would basically say that they're demonic um i hmm. think that he could get away with it just given where he lived um but the sudden and abrupt nature of him resigning um may lead to some speculation that there's something here. Hopefully it is not anything life-threatening or too serious, you know, something medically oriented. Um, it is rumored that he's going to be leaving along with several senior people. Maybe Qatar Airways wanted to shake up the management uh, sort of structure at the airline. Perhaps it's ready to usher into a new era. Perhaps it's ready to rebrand and, you know, maybe take on a purple color. Um Anything is possible. Maybe he's going to go lead on uh, Riyadh Airways, Riyadh International Airlines. So it could be that. Or maybe, for all you know, he's going to come and be the next chief commercial officer at American Airlines. I don't know. I, I think there's going to be more that will come out of this. Uh, yeah. You know, maybe it's he'll turn it. <laughs> it's still a mystery. He, that No one knows. He hasn't said anything. That's the reason why he's been stepping down for sure. Yeah, I, I think it's not, it seems like the three, so there's the two sort of real theories, maybe two and a half, and then like uh, one fun conspiracy theory. So the, the two ish, realish theories are something like health problems. That's probably Occam's razor, right? That's probably the most likely is like some sort of health challenge, especially given the suddenness. Mm. Uh, option number two is he sort of is planning to go and take over other airline. Maybe India threw a boatload, yeah, Tata threw a boatload of cash at him to go remake Air India. You know, re, RIA was another good example. Um, option number three, or like two and a half, let's call it, 
is that some yeah you know, the Qatari government or Qatari you know ec- ec- economy ministry or whatever um, wasn't happy with how with the lack of seriousness with which he's approaching some of these new threats, whether it's Ria, whether it's um, the new Air India. The fun conspiracy theory is that Airbus wanted him out after the uh, A350 debate debacle. Um, but I'm actually less interested in that. Um, well, not less interested. I, I think I'll, I'll continue to follow that. We'll continue to follow that over the next few weeks. Um, the thing I want to actually maybe finish on here is um, I'm going to run something by you, by you both, and I'm curious to get your reactions to it. So I think that what Akbar Al-Baker did at... Qatar Airways is the most impressive airline build that we have seen in the last 40 years. And so the other contenders would be something like Emirates, obviously right down the road, <laughs> certainly not Etihad these days. Um, uh, you know, Singapore Airlines was, I think, built up in a di- bit of a different time. So I'm going to exclude that one. Right. Um, but the other options would be sort of like Emirates, what um, Michael O'Leary has done over at Ryanair. Um, you might be able to throw in Tony Fernandez over at Air Asia, and then um, yeah, I mean, I, I think those those would be probably the contenders that people would call out. Maybe one of the Chinese carriers you were feeling this. So, what makes it more impressive than the ULCCs to me is that the ULCC business model is one that has been proven to work over and over and over again, right? So, um, you know, whether you're in the United States, Spirit and Frontier, whether you're in Latin America with, um, you know, with uh, with Goal and more recently with Azul, um, you know, Africa, not so much quite yet, but in India with Indigo, right? There's been a number of ULCCs that have built up around the world. So what Michael O'Leary, what Tony Fernandez did, very impressive, but it's taking a successful template and copying it across the Michael O'Leary copied Southwest, Indigo, and, you know, AirAsia copied Ryanair to some extent. Okay. Now, the Qatar versus Emirates, I think, is where people would have more of a quibble. But I think that... Qatar versus Emirates debate is actually quite interesting because I think Tim Clark and Emirates have a lot more to work with, right? In terms of, first, Dubai is a really important financial hub in its own right. Now, some of that has been developed and built up by Emirates' presence, but Dubai is to the Middle East, to North Africa, frankly, to the Muslim world, what London or New York are to global finance or what or what Tokyo or Hong Kong are to Asian finance, right? Mm. It is central business and financial capital of the Muslim world, right? So that is going to generate a different level of origin and destination demand and premium cabin demand than Doha Qatar is, right? Um, Similarly, because of its large population of Indians, Dubai has a much more um, uh, loose, let's call it, or, or a much less restrictive bilateral agreement with India. And part of what has fueled Emirates' rise over the past 30 years is the rise of India as a, an, an economy and the lack of its homegrown carriers to capitalize on, right? So when you add all that up, I think, yes, Tim Clark and Emirates have, 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 have built a bigger airline, but I think what sort of Qatar Airways was truly built out of nothing, right? Like Doha is cool. I, I, was, I was there last year for the World Cup, but it, it is not what you would describe as a tourist destination. It's certainly not what you would describe as a general financial and business capital. And yet, he has manufactured one of the world's best airlines and one of the world's largest airlines, airline hubs, out of scratch in the middle of the the desert. So that's my contention, is that it is the single most impressive airline build that we've seen in the last 40 years. I'd agree. 
Yeah, I believe yeah. are. It's there's not a whole lot going on. I think that's why why they they push for for the the World Cup, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, they they push for the World Cup because they wanted tourism, and I think to some extent they were trying to run the tourism part of Dubai's playbook. But yeah, I, I just I I am more impressed by what Al Baker did at um, Qatar Airways than by what um, Tim Clark did at Emirates, and both are again very impressive in their own right. But the difference is that Qatar Airways. You can you can see how that goes wrong much more easily, right? With Dubai, you're just capitalizing on natural demand and geography, and you're just scaling that hub up over time. But there's at least a base of or of people flying to and from Dubai to actually take advantage. Yeah. With, with, with Doha, that was conjured up out of thin air, and you've seen this go wrong with, um, with uh, with uh, Etihad, right? You've seen this go wrong to some extent with Oman Air and kind of bouncing back and forth. Um, so I just you know, at this sort of end of his career at Qatar Airways, I think it's worth just taking a moment to appreciate what was built. Agreed. Implementing an idea from scratch out of nothing. Visionary leadership, insisting on the higher standards, having the support of your government, having lower operational costs, having fewer regulations to worry about. And then most of all, just being a very, I don't know, Let's put it this way, big personality that whatever he wants, he gets. And never But maybe it takes that, right? Like maybe maybe it maybe the reason that Ed had has failed to some extent is the fact that they didn't have that sort of big personality that could push through some of the objections internally within Abu Dhabi. You never know. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. For those of you who are, want to see the eagle eye, you can check out our article on Al Baker stepping down at airwaysmag.com. Thank you, guys. It's been uh, wonderful, as always. And as always, you can subscribe to the Airways podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please like, uh, rate us, leave us a review. You're going to be seeing more clips from these episodes you know, coming out across the next uh, few weeks across all of Airways Magazine social media channels. So definitely give us a listen, tell a friend. Um, if you don't like us, tell your enemy, right? Just just more listenership is always good for us. And uh, yeah, um, we'll, we'll be back next week um, with another episode. Thanks for listening.